primaries fascinate me. I know I'm probably one of the few in this room. Uh, Cindy and I are somewhat of political junkies. Uh, this has been a horrible, horrible, horrible election cycle. I get a line after every service saying, I mean, how do I vote? How do I vote? If you've not watched the John Lithgow uh, little clip, you should go watch that. But um, how does yesterday's incompetent enemy become today's candidate? You can hate each other in the primaries, but once that man or woman is selected, we're all lined up and salute. It is not only a marker or an indication of the political system in our country, it, is, it tells a lot about us as human beings. Now, there are good men and women on Capitol Hill in an office who love Christ and are trying to do a good thing, but it's a tough environment. I would suggest so is your environment and so is mine. Words cut, words confuse, words hurt, words can bruise, words can slander, words can malign. Words become documents, documents become contracts, contracts become litigated. Because what we say and what we do are two different things. Even though words are supposed to bind, we're quick to break those words that we have said. Not only can they hurt, they can libel and slander and damage a person for the rest of their life just because someone said something about another person. Words are what men and women die for. What a world it would be if we all told the truth all the time. Not only would all of our friends in the legal profession be out of work, it would be, I'm sorry, David, it would be... Uh, It'd be a different world if everyone told the truth and kept their word. But we're fallen people in a fallen context. Unfortunately, words reveal our heart, they reveal our head, they reveal our motives, they reveal perhaps our true self at a particular point in time when we say things, and we've all said things out of frustration, out of ego, out of anger, out of revenge, out of justice. What difference do our words make? Psalm 12 deals with words. Would you please open your Bible or your cheating electronic device, <laughs> click it, and you can check your email when you're bored. I know how this works. <laughs> Psalm chapter 12, the Psalms are the Hebrew songbook, the Hebrew Psalter. And I remind you, these songs were known by heart by the pious Jew, the top 150. These songs taught theology and history and all sorts of things that the Jew was to remember, and they were set to a structure that for us is a little foreign because we think of rhyme and melody and music to seam it together, but the Hebrew brain worked on structure and repetition, which we'll look at some today. It breaks into three sections. The, the superscription to the psalm, if you have a Bible that has a little note, it will say, for the choir director upon the eight-stringed lyre, a psalm of David. Uh, scholars debate to this day whether those are part of the inerrant text or not. I tend to believe if they're not inerrant, they're awfully reliable. But we're not always timestamped, meaning we don't precisely know when did this take place in the life of David. And this, in some respects, is a generic psalm. And as you're going to see, it deals not with an enemy, but with the words of people around the king. Let's look at verse 1, number 1, the words of the wicked. Help, Lord, 
for the godly man ceases to be. The faithful disappear from among the sons of men. If you're using an ESV, the first word is save. It's the Hebrew word yasa, Joshua. Salvation comes from the same stem of this word. To free, to rescue, to bring to safety. And you would expect the Hebrew term here to be salvation. The word's used in a number of ways. It's found 353 plus times in your Old Testament depending on how the root of the word is used. We need God's help. When man has expended his or her resources, we need someone else to come alongside and help us. So to get out of danger, distress, to get out of trouble. But this psalm's unusual. It's to get away from liars, from deceitful people, from the wicked who speak cruel words. A couple of things about God saving us and when we pray. When we petition Yahweh, number one, He may not deliver. He may not respond the way we want, the manner or form. Secondly, he might save. He might come to our aid. He might come to our aid in signs and wonders, which, by the way, are unique and unusual and not often found. That's why they're called signs and wonders. That's why it's supernatural above nature. So when we think of Exodus chapter 14, where he saved his people against insurmountable odds, Pharaoh breathing down their necks, the sea in front of them, what are we going to do? If God doesn't intervene, they're going to die or go back to captivity. So God intervenes and saves. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, he might fight for his people. God may intervene by fighting for his people. Now, the spiritual application of pleading to God for help is not hard to connect the dots. This doesn't take a lot of Bible study or devotion or meditation there are times we petition God for help when our resources are gone. When you and I bring our intelligence, our network, our money, whatever we have to the table, when we have ushered all that we can to fix the situation and it's not remedied, then we cry for help. Is there any corollary that God may allow these things in our life that we may finally surrender? Chilling to think about. Well, the psalmist's plea, again, is not about some ancient terrorist. It's not about enemies that are trying to kill him. We have no indication in the text it's about Saul when he was running from Saul. It's from people who are lying. Godly men have disappeared, verse 1. Knox rendered the verse, Lord, come to my rescue. Piety is dead. In a base world, true hearts have gone rare. Ever get to the place where you've been betrayed and people have spoken things about you? And it's, who, who can I trust anymore? Who can I believe? This is a cutthroat business I'm in. How in the world do I navigate this? Well, I want you to see the parallels between godly man and faithful and cease and disappear. When you read the Psalms, look for repetitions and restatement. We talked before about a chiastic device. I won't bore you too much here, but the letter key in Greek, not chi like you learned in your sorority or fraternity, but key looks like a stylistic X. And so it's A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, and so forth and so on. The middle of the chiastic device is the point of the structure. We'll see that today in this psalm. But the parallels are meant to remind us. Again, you hear a song on the radio that you like, a new tune, a new hit. If it catches you, if the beat's right, the melody's right, it's memorable, you're going to pick up, what, 60% of the lyrics the first time through? 
And after you've heard it four, five, six, ten times, you'll know almost all the... I'm amazed at my daughter who knows every word to every song that's currently played anywhere on any playlist. She just has a brain for music and can memorize. Well, the Hebrew Psalter, the songbook, was that top 50, on 50, but it was to teach them about who God was and every emotion is expressed. The godly man's parallel to faithful, the one who ceases is parallel to the one who disappears. Now godly is our word chesed, but it's a little different. I've spoken many times about the word chesed in the Old Testament. In the New American Standard, it's always loving kindness. In the ESV, it's always steadfast love. If you use an NIV, you're on your own. It's help, love, mercy. It can be whatever they want it to be. So chesed is the most important word in the Old Testament. Here it's a collective term, so the Bible renders it godly. The godly, those who are faithful, Hesed was that God loves to be loyal to his covenant uh, promises and his chosen people. CPCP, his covenant promise and his chosen people. God's character ethically, he loves to be loyal to the people he chooses and the promises he makes. Here we're seeing a collective. The godly, those who subscribe to being faithful to God, are gone. I can't find anybody I can trust, Lord. The faithful disappear. Verse 2, he describes these people. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Again, you'd think he was talking about an enemy trying to kill him. He's just talking about the everyday common garden variety liar. The everyday person who speaks ill of one another. It's characterized by falsehood, and there's three types of speech in this verse. Falsehood, flattering lips, and double heart. See it? Falsehood, flattering lips, double heart. Falsehood simply means an empty talk. Empty talk is big talk, right? It's untrue. It's lies. It's conflated. Howard Newton says, the thoughtless are rarely wordless. It's commonly used in the Bible for vanity. Idols are considered vain. It means the same word. They're empty. There's nothing that idol can do for you. It's a piece of wood that you polished or carved or painted and you worship this thing. It can't do anything for you. It's an empty vessel. Flattering lips depict the speech of a person, a smooth talker. Proverbs 6.24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now let me take a side sidebar and talk a little bit about Proverbs because this is something I find that's uh, one of the, my pet peeves that's often misapplied. Proverbs is anthropomorphic language. We're taking human language. God gave us human language to describe something that's hard to describe. The story of Proverbs is the book of wisdom, and it's these little witticisms. Now, the adulteress is the evil woman who's tempting the young man, who's got her couch lined, who's enticing him to immorality while her husband's gone. You know the story, right? And so we think about this adulteress. And then we have Proverbs 31. Forgive me if you've written a book, women, on Proverbs 31, or a Bible study, or if you have a calligraphy thing and you're praying to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Forgive me for what I'm about to say. Uh, You can be mad at me. It's okay. I'm a big boy. Forgive me, but that's not what that passage is about. It's the personification of wisdom. What does wisdom look like? Works early, works late, cares for her own. It's a personification of of wisdom, not a person. 
So I absolve you from trying to be the perfect Proverbs 31 woman. <laughs> the Bible's not sexist, contrary to popular thinking. Wisdom is portrayed as chapter 8. Wisdom calls to the naive, calls to the simple. Come, I'm here for everyone. You can gain wisdom. How do you explain an abstract term like wisdom? You personify it, talk about a woman. The adulteress leads you to the way of the wicked. The wise woman leads you to the way of righteousness. That's what proverbial literature is all about. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. Make sense? Now, all that was for free. Let's go back to uh, Psalm 12. Flattering lips is used there. The seductress with smooth talk, the way of the wicked, the way of immorality is painted for the young reader. Thirdly then, double heart. Falsehood, flattering lips, or a double heart. James 1.8 speaks of the same double-minded person, unstable in all his ways. This is why it's so hard to watch politics. We, we watch them speak on and off camera or through email. God help us, what's next? Falsehood, flattering lips, double heart. What I said before, what I really meant, they nuance it. They, the term in politics is called block and bridge. So when they're asked a question by a reporter, it's a very simple yes, no, true or false question. They block the question and then they give the message they want the people to hear. And the better the politician, the smoother they do that. The worse the politician and the more halting or poorly they do it. The worst thing to do is to answer the question can't tell the truth you got to block it and bridge it now I'm, I'm speaking in grandiose terms but you know what I mean by this you remember some of you are old enough to remember when a handshake was as good as a man's word you remember this some of you who are over some of you have no idea what I'm talking about um, years ago when I was in Chicago we had a, a company come out from California and spend the day with us to sell us something and partner with them and we spent the bulk of a morning, probably almost a day, talking about this business relationship we were going to have. And at the end of the time, winding down, we liked each, them, they liked us, and so forth. And um, the COO that I worked with at the time said to this group, well, what do we need going forward? We want to draft something up, we want to have our attorneys look at it and go from here. And the owner of the company stood up and he reached his hand to mine and he, he said, all I need is his handshake. And he, he and I looked in our eyes and we shook hands. And I'm still friends with him all these years later because his word was his bond and our handshake sealed that commitment. We didn't need to put those words on a document and they did ultimately, but the point wasn't, I, when I leave this meeting today, I trust you and I believe you and I'm not going to go do an end run around you or I'm not going to go hire somebody else instead of you and you're going to do what you said for me and you know what's fascinating? He did a lot more than he ever said in that meeting for me. And I'd do anything for him. Because our word and our handshake was a bond. That's gone today. Falsehood, flattering lips, double heart. Seaman McManus said, he's as good as his word, and his word is no good. The hardest job Cindy and I have ever had is raising children. Parenting makes everything else look easy. We've raised four children. I say raised in the past tense as a hopeful anticipatory phrase. We've raised four children. They're gone. We're empty nesters. 
Sorry, all you young parents. It's the best chapter of life. You got something to look forward to. They're so fun when they're little. Then you get to pray for four or five or six, ten years, and then they go home, they go away. And then you're happy. Sorry, I can't restrain my enthusiasm. We browbeat our children. We read books. We have books on the shelves like this about how to parent. Cindy was the reader. I was the recipient of what I was supposed to do as a parent. We taught parenting conferences for 15, almost 20 years, marriage and parenting conferences. I, I don't mind teaching on marriage. I quit teaching on parenting a long time ago. I've repented. I will never teach on parenting ever again as long as I live. I just won't do it. I'm done teaching on parenting. Um, oh, we had all kinds of rules and systems and games and incentives and all kinds of stuff raising our kids. One of the big things we always browbeat our children was, you will tell the truth. I had this axiom, they all probably have nightmares. Easleys are truth tellers. Easleys don't tell lies. You wear my last name, you tell the truth. It's your name too. Easleys are known for being truth tellers. So where do parents get this crazy harebrained idea? Look me in the eye and tell me the truth. You don't think they can lie to you looking you in the eye? You really need help if you don't believe that. You could have smoking gun, DNA, multiple eyewitnesses, a camera that went 360 and HD, and they would still say, I didn't do that. They can lie. They are so proficient at lying. And what do we all do as parents? You tell me the truth now, and things will what? Be easier. You continue to lie to me, it's going to get a lot worse. That doesn't help either. When did it get so easy for us to lie? When did you last lie? When did I last lie? Why? Is not the truth the safe, perfect harbor? Are not lies complicated to prop up and keep and remember? Proverbs 19, uh, 10.19, 10.19, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. I hate that verse. Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Shut up! Now, if you're like me, it's, it's not the gift of gab. It's the curse of gab. If you can talk to anybody, it's a good thing, but the wisdom literature tells us a man or woman of many words unavoidably lies. Vocabulary will catch up. We'll transition. The psalmist continues to pray for the destruction of these wicked people. These are people that are speaking lies. These aren't people trying to kill him. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that speaks great things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Now, cut off is an oriental term, and the Hebrew scholars disagree on this, and I don't have any conclusive opinion, but some believe it was a literal rendering of 
in the Oriental world and monarchies, if someone lied, you cut off their tongue. And we've all seen anecdotal or maybe stories or movies where this happens and someone loses their tongue. Um, I don't know that that's what David had in mind. It doesn't seem like he just wants to remove the people from his kingdom because that'd be something he could do as a king. So we're not sure. David asks, is asking, at least at the baseline, I want you to destroy the arrogant, the evil, the wicked, the liars around me. Pretty harsh stuff. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. And then we'll call this, for example, the interlocutor. He's saying, what are those people like? They say things like this, with our tongue we will prevail. I can talk my way out of this. I can use my word. You know, some of us in this room have been in meetings or in conflicts where we can just simply talk our way out of a mess. It's great if you get pulled over by uh, the law enforcement for speeding. Some of you can talk. I, I swear my daughters can all roll their eyes and bat their eyelashes and then never get a ticket. They can talk their way out of a ticket. The interlocutor says, with my tongue I'll win. I'll prevail. Our lips are our own. And the implication of who is Lord over us, in other words, there's no God over me. I can do what I want. It's the ultimate of hubris. Chesterton wrote, easy speeches that comfort cruel men. Well, God does not overlook big talk. Schweitzer said, truth has no special time of its own. Its hour is now, always. Always. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I should be the most truthful group on the planet. We speak the truth in love. We admit our mistakes. We're willing to take the blame when it comes our way. We're unafraid of the truth because we're all flawed creatures, every one of us. We all make mistakes. We all make bad decisions. We all do dumb things from time to time. I own it. I did it. It's my fault. I'm sorry. What do I need to do to make it right? And you know what 99 out of 100 people say? Fine, thanks for admitting it. Sure, there are people that are never going to take you, but they're not going to matter anyway, no matter what you do or say. Who is our Lord? The expected answer? Nobody. I'm my own God. Well, the psalmist laments, and he longs for deliverance. Now watch verse 5, because it is unique in the song. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy. That's a parallel. Two causal statements. Because of, because of, because of the devastation of the afflicted. In other words, because what these evil words have done to people who are oppressed. Secondly, because of the groaning. I've heard their cry because evil men who speak untruth and lie and deceive, that has a consequence on people. Because of those things, now I will arise. Who's speaking? God has interjected into the song. So the lament of the psalm in the first five verses, the four verses now transitions to God intervening in the psalm. And by the way, this is the X marked the spot. This is the middle of the song. So the point of the song is God is going to arise. The language here is the afflicted and the oppressed and the needy are beaten down. And the imagery is God's going to rise up. That doesn't mean God's sleeping or laying down the job. It means God's moving into action now. And so the song moves the listener with verbal causal effect to say, look, God's going to get in motion now. I will set him 
in the safety for which he longs. I'm going to rescue the needy and the afflicted. God will not overlook injustice. He will deal with these things. Now, God does not simply overlook or ignore. He's going to bring consequences on that. So when you and I feel lonely or alone or the victim, he may not save in our temporal condition. He may not fix things in the immediate future. He may not remedy it in the time or manner the way I would like him to remedy it. But he will remedy it. And that's the faith and the hope of the believer in Christ, no matter what our circumstances try to tell us. And then verses 6 to 8 transition to speaking of God's words. We've heard of man's words. They're lying, they're deceptive, they're flattery, they're empty, they're vain. But now we look at God's word, verse 6. The words of the Lord, in contrast, are pure words. As silver in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness, that's a, related to that word empty, when vileness are exalted among the sons of men. Third and last is cling to God's word. Cling to God's word. Have confidence in his word. Now men's words are evil and wicked and unreliable. God's word is pure and untarnished. Three ways this pure is used which illustrates what the word means. We read pure words. What does that mean? Ethically pure. In Psalm 51, 12, it's the same word used of a clean heart. Create in me, O Lord, a clean heart. Same word. In Habakkuk 1, 13, it's used of clean eyes. And in Job 17, 9, it's used of clean hands. Think about the, the way the word is used. Clean heart, clean eyes, clean hands. And we're reading now, clean, pure words. What a great reminder for you and me that we have clean hands, clean eyes, and a clean heart. And that is the work of God. He likens it to silver in a furnace refined seven times. It's flawless. There's no dross. When I was a boy, uh, this is back before we were aware of lead poisoning and when there was no EPA like it is today, so forgive the story, but... Uh, my brother and I would go with my dad on Saturday to gas up his car. He traveled for a living, and he came home on the weekend, and so he would take us to run errands. And my brother and I, we had a job. We'd get out of the car, and gas stations were gas stations in those days. They did minor service and repair and mechanical work. And scattered around the, the edges of the gas station were lead weights for balancing tires. Again, you're probably over 55 to know what I'm talking about right now. But there, were, there was a day when you had your wheels balanced and they used these lead weights with a steel clip on the rim and they would balance your tires for you. Well, when the mechanics took those things off to rebalance them, they literally just threw them on the ground. So my brother and I would scour the gas station and pick up these handful of lead weights and we had this steel, uh, this uh, coffee can in the garage we'd throw them in. And then when dad had time and margin and we had enough lead weights, we'd make soldiers. Dad had about four lead soldier molds. He had a butane uh, pipe in the, in the garage and we would fire up this thing and it had a little cast iron deal with a handle on it and we dropped those lead weights in there and the lead would just melt instantly and the steel tang had to be removed because you can't melt steel with a propane flame. And then it would have this dross, this dirt grease stuff on the top of the lead. And you had to skim it off. And the best way was to heat it, 
let it cool, skim it off. Heat it, let it cool. And you had to do it lots of times to get all the dross, all the dirt and impurities out of the lead. The reason you do that is because these, these molds had intricate little parts in them. And now I know it's politically incorrect. Just listen to the story, okay? Um, they were all army men. So they were guys laying on the ground with guns, on the knee with a gun. My favorite was this standing rifleman. And his head and his rifle were at the very top of the mold. So you know what's happening here. If you don't have the lead purified enough and all the dross out, when you pour that lead in there that's melted, the dross rises to the top. So what happens is you got this mold and you've gone through all this painstaking process. You pour it in there. Impatient boys want to open it up and take a look at the, at the soldier. You open it up. He's got no, soul, no head and no gun. <laughs> because the dross kept that from filling out the mold. It wasn't pure. God's word's pure. It's refined seven times. There's no dross. There's no impurity in it. And you can count on it. It's reliable. Notice that he's kept by God's word. He, not man, keeps promises. He, unlike men, doesn't break his word. People break contracts all the time. Many of you are in the legal profession. A lot of your life is saying, you said this, you wrote this, I'm holding you accountable. A lot of your life is combing through endless amount of words. You, you wrote, you, you, said, you signed, when you agreed to that, you committed to that word. God's word is unlike man's. It doesn't change. He, unlike man, doesn't break his promise. Romans 1.29, listen to Paul's references to language how many of the lists and the, the sins in this list have to do with what we say in, in our words? Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. You can't be in strife, deceit, or malice without words. They're gossips. That's a big word. Slanderers. On his list goes. I love it when he says, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Didn't, didn't always kind of catch you on your heels? Murder, adultery, all these things, and disobedient to parents. That, that, shouldn't it be like a C-class sin, not an A-class sin? <laughs> I mean, I just lied to my mom and dad. What's the big deal? I'm not a murderer. God's vantage as a pure, holy, sovereign, just God, sin to sin. Lying to your parents is as egregious as murdering somebody. Being deceitful is as egregious as immorality. Sin is sin. Well, three lessons. Number one, others suffer from our speech. This is somewhat of a duh lesson, but it's a good reminder. People suffer when we say certain things. The psalm is a lament over words. Don't miss it. If you suffer from other people's speech when they've lied about you, they've misrepresented you, they've broken a contract, they've slandered, they've said cruel things about you, and it gets back to you. How do you feel when someone says, did you know that so-and-so said such-and-such about you? It cuts you like a knife. And they don't know your business. 
but they're making an assessment on who you are and your motivation and your heart because of rumor and gossip. Now, not to get too meddlesome, but I am a preacher. Um, family systems are fascinating. And when someone says to you in your family, don't tell your brother, but... Has the bell gone off in your head? If they're saying that to you, that when you're not around, they're saying, don't tell your sister, but. I mean, you figured this out, right? You're not like the one trustworthy person in the family. If you are, you're deluded. And there's help available. If someone is telling you something that they shouldn't be telling you, you can be fairly certain they're telling others things about you you prefer they not share in that Christian sort of way. You make a promise, you made a commitment, or have you delivered? Or is it empty talk? Do you exaggerate the truth? Do you add adjectives to the story? One of our children is one of our greatest storytellers. We love to hear this child tell stories, adult tell stories today. And you know, a story that was this big when they were 12 is this big today. And we just laugh and goad this child endlessly because of the hyperbolic language that has developed over the years. It's just totally entertaining. And it's all in good fun because it's family fun and we all know what really happened and that's what it is. But when you get outside where it's hurting people, you've all seen it. Maybe you remember doing it like third grade. The teacher whispers, Six words in a phrase to the first child on the row and they pass it around the room and the last child stands up and says something that's remotely similar to what began. Transmission is a hard thing. And we add and we embellish. Secondly, a question lesson. Do you feel like you're surrounded by faithless people? Have you been injured, bruised, slandered, maligned, misrepresented, hurt. You've gone through a hard time and people have said cruel things about you when they don't know the whole story. They make a judgment or an assessment. Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Neuroscience is sort of the new fad, and I don't know the numbers exactly, but there's some people that believe it takes 15 to 20 positive re-impressions to begin to compensate for one negative one. We hear stories about people who have passed away, and you find a newspaper clipping in their wallet that says one good thing about them. Words hurt. We can be hurt by them. And when you and I are wounded by them, how do we get over it? Do we hudge, uh, grudge, hold grudges? Do we hedge against them? Do we gossip about them? Van Gimmeren wrote, God guards his people even when the evil and liars walk around like kings. It's not in the way or the manner we'd like to see God guarding us, but that's where the realignment to his word takes place. And that's why we have to think not as we ought to think, think as we should think, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Thinking correctly is the beginning of sanctification transformation. 
Jot down Ephesians 4, 25 to 32 and look at it when you get home today. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. Lay aside falsehood, speak truth each to you, to his neighbor. We're all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. On and on it goes. Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. Lastly, there's no resolution to the psalm. It's a haunting ending. It kind of leaves us hanging. Some people don't like psalms that don't have a happily ever after ending. I love psalms that don't have a happily ever after ending because life rarely has a happily ever after ending. It's real. It's the tension of living as a believer in a faithless community. The words of the Lord are pure and flawless. The whole story is this, is, this is how we came to faith. It was God's word revealed in some manner or form, but it was his word that was transformed in our lives. How do I know I'm saved once for all? How do I know he loves me? How do I know he forgives me? How do I know he cares about me when no one else does? How do I know fill in the blank? What you know about God was revealed in his word. And we've got it in every device, every form or fashion. We can carry it around, small, big, large, tablet computers, or even an old-fashioned book. And do we integrate it in our life to the point that it supplants the tendency to lie, to deceive, to elaborate, to embellish, to hurt? And this is why community is critical. I'll say it as long as I live. God's word, God's people, God's spirit. You have to have those three things. You have to have the truth to begin with. You have to have his spirit to interpret and dwell and press and transform us. And you've got to have God's people to round off the edges because you can't live the Christian life in a vacuum. I've tried. Have you? You get bitter pretty quickly. The monastic period failed for a reason. You can't do it alone. You need people who will speak the truth and love around you. We're accustomed to a culture that lies about everything. We're watching a political season unfold, and the reason we're all so stinking jaded is because we don't believe any of them. Right? So as a community of faith, how are you going to live? How am I going to live? Are we going to be people who speak the truth in love? Yes, we need a place where we can dump and vent and kvetch. And that's a community that's willing to look you in the eye and dope slap you when you need it. To encourage you when you need it. To listen when you need it. To walk through the perils of all this stuff. God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. Father in heaven, we love you. We want to love you well. Help us in our flawed speech, our empty speech, our vain speech, our flattering speech to be men and women of the book. Not to be super over-toxically spiritual, but to understand you love us, you forgive us, you are in the business of transforming sinners into something that we are not. Help us to have patience with one another, to have love and kindness toward each other, but to know when to draw a line when the falsehood becomes a pattern, when the evil becomes hurtful and vindictive when revenge and slander hurts others. Help us to be those who can walk away from a conversation or to speak the truth in love in the proper context. And may we of all people be those who speak well of one another and of you. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great, great week.